All of a sudden I heard one shot, two shot, three shot. By the second, third shot, I heard Ben holler. By then I walked to the fence. I seen Ben sitting at the bus stop on 15th and Frierson. By then I walked down and ran to Ben. This is Clint Foster. People call him Yaya. He was one of the first people on the scene when the Seminole Heights serial killer targeted the first victim, Benjamin Mitchell. This is where the investigation begins. Day one. It's 9 p.m. on Monday, October 9th, 2017. Benjamin Mitchell is standing at a bus stop in Seminole Heights. Benjamin is black. He's about six feet tall and 220 pounds. He has a beard and usually wears glasses. In the following weeks, the city would add lights in the neighborhood to make it safer as they searched for a serial killer. But at this moment, it was dimmer. Looking at Google Maps street view images, there are no street lights directly above the bus stop at this time. The closest ones aren't near enough to provide much illumination. So it's safe to say Benjamin is standing in the dark. There are also trees and shrubbery around the area. Coupled with the darkness, it would be easy for someone to linger unnoticed, watching Benjamin, waiting for the perfect time to strike. The killer could be waiting in the shadows right now, watching Benjamin as he waits for the bus stop. Maybe he walks up to him unnoticed until he's too close for Ben to run away. Benjamin often wears headphones, lost in his own musical world. So maybe he doesn't notice anything until the first bullet hits him. Maybe he never saw the killer coming. But the killer did come on a dark street in Seminole Heights at 9 p.m. Someone shot Benjamin Mitchell four times, once in the left side of his chest, twice in his lower abdomen, and once in his left arm. Riley Holmes is a close friend of Benjamin's. He's riding on the number nine bus with his girlfriend and five-year-old daughter around 9 p.m. His little girl is asleep, so he's holding her in his arms. They're all standing at the back door, ready to get off and walk home. Riley's girlfriend lives on 15th Street, so it's a short trek. But they're delayed when the driver, Julia Ames, spots a crowd of people. This is Julia talking to police. There was a young lady that was in the background, and I think she was on the phone with the police. I'm not sure who she okay. was on the phone with. And all she said was, go, just go. Julia decides to take the advice. She gets ready to pull off, but Riley still wants to get off. He asks her to open the back door. No movement. He keeps repeating himself. Back door, back door, back door. The driver eventually opens it. Here's Riley. I knew who he was. Like, he's like one of my best friends. We went to you know? Yes, he's one of my best friends. We yeah. went to school together. Every day we walk, we walk to and from school. Every day, every day he got work. I see him walking down the street. We stop, we just chit chat five, ten minutes. What's his name? His name is Benjamin. Riley looks at Ben on the ground. By the time they get off the bus, he sees someone helping Ben, and there are others around. His daughter is still sleeping, and he doesn't want her to see this. So Riley walks his daughter and girlfriend to his girlfriend's home, then heads back to see what's happening. When Yaya shows up on scene, he finds Ben on the ground. As Yaya told police, Ben is still alive at this point. Yaya looks over and notices a woman nearby calling police. She's keeping her distance from Ben, who's bleeding on the ground, struggling to stay alive. But Yaya just can't stand there and wait. He takes off his shirt and uses it to apply pressure to Benjamin's wounds. Around 9 p.m. that night, Brendan Hines is watching television with his family. He hears what sounds like four gunshots go off in front of his home, but he brushes it off. He thinks it's probably just some kids playing with fireworks. 
but curiosity gets the best of his girlfriend, who goes and looks out the window. She tells Brandon he's wrong. Someone was shot and they are lying in the road. Brandon takes a look for himself. She's right. He makes sure it's safe to go outside, presumably scanning the street from his front window, then grabs a shirt and some socks to use as bandages and runs out to help. When he gets there, Ben is still alive, making what Brandon describes as girdling noises. More people come. They just stand by and watch, maybe realizing they could be witnessing a man take his last breaths. Some, like Yaya, probably know Benjamin. As they stand by, someone takes out a cell phone and starts recording. It shouldn't be surprising in today's social media-obsessed world, but it still is when you think about what's going on. Benjamin is dying, and it's not pretty. He's been shot four times, so he's bleeding, and he's making odd noises. That's not how his family wants to see him. But when they look on social media later that night, it's exactly what they see. More on that later. For now, just picture a crowd unwittingly turning a young man's death into a spectator sport. Police take over when they arrive. According to a report from one of the first officers on scene, by this time, Benjamin's pulse is already gone. Brandon agrees with this. About the time the police got there, he can't feel a pulse anymore. But they do what they can, performing chest compressions, the eyes of the crowd still on them as they try to save Benjamin Mitchell's life. Tampa Fire Rescue Paramedics team shows up and rushes Benjamin to the hospital. This is Yaya speaking to police again. Listen, it hurt me, y'all. They cut that dude, don't mess with nobody, man. That's what everybody I hope y'all, man, he's second year ACC. You know yep. what I'm saying? He don't mess with nobody, man. This is a sentiment echoed in police interviews with other witnesses. Ben is a good kid. He's going to Hillsborough Community College. He has a job. He never bothers anyone. The unasked question, how could a kid like that end up getting shot? A few minutes after the ambulance leaves, Benjamin's uncle, Alton McDaniel, shows up. His wife got a call from someone who'd heard Benjamin was shot. He says Benjamin left home earlier to catch the bus. That's how he usually gets around. One of the last things that Alton tells Ben before he heads out that night, be careful. 31 minutes after being shot, Benjamin Mitchell is pronounced dead. He's only 22 years old. It's a little more than a year later. We're in the Sulphur Springs neighborhood, just north of the Seminole Heights area. We're meeting with Angelique Dupree, who quips that she's somehow become the spokesperson for Benjamin Mitchell's family. It's not really a joke. There's no joy in her new role for the family. It's just everything is not the same. I mean, you try to make it the same, but it's not the same. Angelique is Ben's first cousin. He's the son of her uncle, but she's older, so much older. She has kids around his age. So Benjamin referred to her as his aunt. It just seemed more natural than a kid who's grown up with her kids calling her by her first name. We're talking to her outside. It's a Saturday and her fiance's kids are in the house. They're playing music and video games inside, so it's quieter in the front yard. But you still may hear the sound of a car passing by or her son's car pulling into the driveway when he comes to drop something off. Or a very friendly cat who hangs out around her house. Full disclosure, Angelique doesn't like cats. But since her fiancé's son fed it a few times, it hangs around the house. Angelique is probably in her late 40s. She smiles a lot, and it's hard not to smile with her, especially when she's sharing heartwarming stories about her nephew. She's wearing her hair in two cornrows going towards the back of her head. She's dressed casually in a sweatshirt and jeans. This past year has seemed too real and somehow not real at all. The morning? Well, that's definitely real. 
A year before Benjamin was killed, Angelique's mother died. So the family's been mourning for two years. The part that doesn't feel real? The fact that she'll never see Ben again. I still when I'm at my aunt's house expecting him to come around the corner and um, with his headphones on, smiling. Until now, Ben's the victim we've probably known the least about. When he was killed, it seemed more like a normal shooting investigation. There's no way to sugarcoat it. He may have gotten more attention if we all knew his death was at the hands of a serial killer. It's something Angelique acknowledges, not with any anger, and surprisingly with some understanding. Benjamin moved in with his aunt and uncle in Seminole Heights just before the 10th grade. Before that, he lived with his father in Nevada. He didn't have any family around his age there. He spent his summers in Tampa with his cousins hanging out, joking around. But that camaraderie was something his father thought was missing in Nevada, so he arranged for Ben to finish high school in Tampa. It was definitely a change from living out west. While Benjamin lived in Nevada for a time, he spent a lot of his adolescence in California. It's where he developed his sense of style. Something that was contrary to how kids his age dressed in Tampa. Benjamin wore regular fit shirts and skinny jeans, but guys in Tampa his age favored oversized shirts and baggy pants. Angelique lights up when she remembers a conversation her sons had with Ben, trying to teach him where he was going wrong with his fashion choices. Their style was a little different, so it was funny seeing them interact together because they were trying to give him our style, and he was trying to give them their style, and my boys was like, no, those not for us. Those are women's jeans. You can't wear those. On top of his sense of style, Benjamin's idea of privacy was something that set him apart. He was surrounded by family in Tampa, and the sense we get from Angelique is it's one of those big, loving families where everyone wants to know what everyone's been up to. They're often in and out of each other's homes, visiting and popping in. We see that for ourselves when we ask about Benjamin's time on the Middleton High School football team. He played during his junior and senior year. Angelique's having trouble remembering what position when her son pulls up in the driveway. He's dropping something off. What position did Ben play in um, football, you know? I think he played linebacker. 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 While Benjamin was open about some stuff, there were a few things he kept quiet about, like girls. When you're in a big family, they always want to know who you're dating. Maybe they know her parents or grandparents. Maybe they've met her around town at a community event. Or she works at their favorite grocery store. But Benjamin was just fine keeping them in the dark about that part of his life. Angelique thought it was funny. They even made a game out of it. When he got a girlfriend, nobody knew. He would just leave. And he kept saying he was going to Walgreens. And I would say, Where's, what's around at Walgreens? And my aunt that he was living with, she's like, it's a girl around. I said, I know it is. So I started calling him Walgreens after that. So when he would come out, I said, going to Walgreens, bring me a soda back. And he put his headphones and laughed. I'm like, okay, auntie, and just walk away. That was our little thing together, him and I. When it came to family, Benjamin was very close with Angelique's mother, who liked to spoil him. My mom and my aunt, who he was staying with, they had went um, for shopping for his senior trip, his senior prom, and he wanted this shirt so badly. And my aunt was like, "No, I'm not getting that shirt." And so my mom was like, "Shh, come here, come here." And he got, went over to the side, and he, him and my my son, they went and got the shirt, and my mom bought him that shirt. And that's I think that's when he kind of like really fell in love with my mom because she kind of cuddled him more. My aunt was more strict with him. My mom was more like that cuddle and come here, to, come here baby, let me hold you. Her death rocked him as much as it did the rest of the family. He got a tattoo of a rose in honor of her. Rose was her middle name. Another thing Benjamin kept close to the vest, his music. 
By the time his family found out that he was into music at all, he was good enough to start booking gigs at clubs in Ybor City. My cousin on my dad's side had came to me one day and she was like, why y'all didn't come to the show? And was like, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, you, uh, Papa and Ben had a show together. And was like, we didn't even know. Papa is Ken German, a hip-hop artist in Tampa. He had more of an R&B vibe and focused on singing. Meanwhile, Ben was a rapper. They're actually cousins, but they had no idea for years. Angelique says they were best friends through high school, but because Ben didn't tell her he knew Ken, neither knew they were related. Ben went by the name Eddie Banks. The S at the end is a dollar sign. We listen to his rhymes, and they're good. That includes the work he did with Ken, other local artists, and his solo tracks. We're no record label execs, but this music sounds as good as anything we've heard on the radio. Honestly, it's better than some of the things we've heard on the radio. We've spent a while talking about Ben and his life. Angelique reminisces about the young and happy man she knew who loved his family, loved his music, and had a bright future ahead. But now, we move on to the hard part, his death. Benjamin was used to Florida. He was used to Tampa, but he wasn't raised here like the other kids is right here, so you know not to be weary of where you are, your surroundings and all that. And even though he had been here that long, he was still very friendly, I guess you can say. We'll probably never know what happened in those moments before Benjamin died. There's a possibility he never saw the killer coming. Or maybe the killer said something to him or struck up a conversation and Benjamin didn't know to be distrustful. Either way, the killer had a gun and Benjamin did it. So it's doubtful being wearier would have changed anything. But it's natural to wonder what would have happened if just one thing had gone differently. What if he had asked someone for a ride instead of getting on the bus? What if he had left the house 15 minutes later? What if he had run when he saw someone coming toward him? Would Ben still be alive? Angelique still remembers that night. Like her uncle, she received a call from someone who had heard about Ben getting shot. Um, a friend, family of a friend had called and said, oh, I heard something about Benjamin had, is at the hospital. And was like, what do you mean he's at the hospital? And he's like, yeah, it's all over Facebook. So I get on his Facebook page to see what's going on. And I'm like, they were saying like, oh, Benjamin, hope you pull through, you know. And me and her both like, what is going on? It's a little alarming how much Angelique was exposed to on social media. Remember in the beginning of the show when we mentioned someone took out a phone and captured Ben lying in the street, bleeding after he had been shot four times? Angelique saw that video. And so did members of the family. She said someone actually posted it on Benjamin's Facebook page. Can you imagine being worried, waiting to hear if the worst has happened to someone you love and coming face to face with something so horrific? That was something that we didn't want to see. We didn't want to see how he died, you know, laying there. Because we could hear in the video the police saying, hold on, you know, breathe, hold on, hold on. And that was like too much for us. We just turned it off at that point. The video was eventually taken down. But when Angelique talks about it, you can see her reliving the moment she saw pieces of it. There are a lot of traumas she's still recovering from connected to Benjamin's death, but this is definitely one of them. After finding out Benjamin was shot, it took Angelique and the rest of the family a while to figure out how he was doing. Her uncle had gone to the hospital, but he wasn't Ben's father, so they wouldn't tell him anything. That meant they had to wait for someone to contact Ben's dad in Las Vegas, who after receiving the tragic news himself, had to deliver it to the family. Ben was dead. 
It seems there's a big hole in Benjamin's family now. No family dinner is really ever the same anymore. They started feeling that with the death of Angelique's mother, but this is different. Her mother had children and grandchildren. She lived a long life before dying. Ben never had a chance. There is nothing, nothing left of him for us. But I mean, we have his music that, you know, we still get together and we'll play that. And we have our memories of him, but something that's tangible that you can touch, like if a child or whatever, to say this was part of Benjamin, we don't have that. You know, he was taken from us at a very, very young age. When Benjamin died, there was a ripple effect. It reverberated through the family. It's something we've heard from everyone we've spoken to. It doesn't end when the victims are dead and buried. For Angelique, it's made her a little bit more afraid for the children she's raising now. She can't lock them in the house, but it's harder to let them go out on their own. Instead of wondering what the worst case scenario is, she knows. It's an unfortunate part of life after Benjamin. It's now her new normal. Back to the night of the shooting, police are canvassing the neighborhood. They want to know if anyone saw anything or if security cameras pick something up. They hit the jackpot on both fronts. Just before midnight, police make contact with Joy Dupree, who lives on Frierson Avenue, the same street where Benjamin was shot. She lives so close to the scene, she hears almost every part of the shooting. What exactly did you hear? Um, I heard the gunshots and uh, I heard a guy yelling and we just like ran out the door. Okay, what did you hear the guy yelling? Like he just like screamed like pain, like ah, uh, like. Okay, like he might have been the one that got shot. Yeah. Then. Okay. After hearing this, Joy and her family decide to take a look at what's going on. Her mother and everyone else go to the back door, but Joy walks to the front, and that's where she notices something suspicious. A man running down the street in a hoodie. And well, he was already past the house when, like, I, by the time I came outside. Okay. Did you come out like you are now on the steps, or did you kind of just peek out the I door? Just, I just opened the door, and I was, like, peeking out. And then once I seen him running, I, like, called my mom because they came out the back. So when I see him running, I'm like, I see a guy running, and they all came to the front. A block away, police would find surveillance video. It shows a man matching Joy's description walking toward the murder scene 10 minutes before Benjamin was shot. It's an image police would later share, one that would be aired across the country. Someone playing with what looks like a cell phone, spinning it around in their hands as they walk casually through the neighborhood. The video quality isn't good enough to see the person's face, but they're wearing a hoodie, just like the person Joy spotted in front of her home. Something the public never heard audio from the surveillance video. About seven or eight minutes after the hooded figure walks out of the frame, you hear gunshots. One shot, a pause, then three quick rounds. Less than 30 seconds later, the hooded figure is seen moving past the camera, but this time he's running. It looks like this could be the guy they're looking for, but how will they find him? Next on 51 Days of Terror. I couldn't imagine what had happened. And then later on, finding out that she had been shot randomly by a lunatic, it's just more than somebody can bear. Uh, they're based on the proximity and the circumstances. We believe that the two recent homicides are related. And then at that point, I'm like, all right, so what do you, what do you want, Trey? Or what do you need? And then he's like, well, and he asked me, he's like, do you, uh, he's like, do you know how I could get a gun? My hopes and prayers are that Chief Dugan takes care of this guy. I talked to him at the 
I talked to him at the memorial service and he said he was doing everything in his power to bring this man to justice. I just want him to bring this man to justice. And then I want to look in that man's eyes and ask him how he could do something so terrible to my daughter. Fifty One Days of Terror is hosted by me, Amanda Shivari. It is written and executive produced by Brianti Downing. Kelly Hatton is our associate producer. Editing by Dallas Cotton. Heather Monahan is our digital producer. Tim Price is our digital editor. Additional reporting done by Brianti Downing and me. Thank you to everyone who talked to us about the investigation and especially the victims. We're honored to tell their stories.